podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. You know what's tough? Well, I mean, probably like childbirth or landing on the moon or brain surgery. But like, if you're a podcaster, you know what's tough? Trying to figure out the actual story of the Illuminati using only books written in English. Obviously, anyone with an internet connection can visit Wikipedia and get a pretty clear understanding of what the Illuminati actually were. And far be it from us to suggest we're too good for a Wikipedia quote. Historically, the name usually refers to the Bavarian Illuminati, an Enlightenment-era secret society founded on May 1st, 1776, in Bavaria, today part of Germany. The society's goals were to oppose superstition, obscurantism, religious influence over public life, and abuses of state power. They were outlawed through edict by Charles Theodore, Elector of Bavaria, with the encouragement of the Catholic Church in 1784, 1785, 1787, and 1790. And then people made up conspiracies about them, suggesting they had not in fact dissolved, and by a couple of centuries later, many of those folks were convinced that the Illuminati now run the world from behind the scenes. But do they? They do not appear to, no. Excellent. Well, that's a wrap, everybody. Great job. We kid, we kid. But we do want to temper your expectations about how deeply we're going to go into the Illuminati story here. Given the three-plus hours of Masons, you might expect the Illuminati section to be just as grandiose, if not more so. After all, the Masons are an organization that, however much their detractors have alleged they've engaged in nefarious backroom machinations, they've largely operated in the open. The Illuminati, by contrast, was genuinely a secret society. That is, they operated essentially by invite only, as opposed to opening franchises in large buildings in every podunk town in the Midwest. Mason style. And remember how the Masons closely held secrets centered around the idea that, as John Dickey told us, death is a serious business? In other words, the secrets weren't exactly secret. The Illuminati had actual secrets. Secrets that the higher-ups deliberately disguised from the world at large, and also from their own members. They operated by infiltration and misdirection. So why, given all that, do you appear to be implying that you will have much less to say about them than about the Masons? Frankly, it's because I'm choosing between providing a manageable overview or dedicating the rest of the run of this podcast ad infinitum to examining every piece of conspiracy theorizing that has somehow been thought to be linked to the Illuminati. The Masons shows are pretty much everything we have to say about that group, though of course they will come up in the future as sidebars to our main topics. Our thorough discussion here means that we won't have to backfill the Masons' story piecemeal as we mention them in the future. The Illuminati, on the other hand, are woven into nearly every topic we have ever, or will ever, cover, and almost none of that has to do with the actual history of the group. We mean it. They can be linked to virtually any conspiracy theory. JFK? Some claim he was shot on the orders of the Illuminati. Space aliens? The Illuminati is in contact with them. Or the Illuminati are themselves space aliens. 
or the Illuminati is faking UFOs to keep us from finding out about their other nefarious plans. Chemtrails? The Illuminati are behind it as a form of population control, or to dumb down the sheeple, or something. QAnon? The Illuminati are the ones conspiring against Trump. False flags? The Illuminati are faking all of these mass shooting events as an excuse to take away our Second Amendment freedoms. See? It's endless. The Illuminati are the one secret society that we can never say we're truly finished examining. So for the moment, we're going to try our best to separate out what is known of the actual history of the group from the later tide of hogwash, and then we'll dive into one small current of the ocean of Illuminati conspiracy theories and see how it's impacted the way some fans look at some of the biggest stars in the music world. Now, let's get down to historicizing, which is where we encounter our first problem. Way back in the mists of time, when we interviewed Professor Spence about secret societies, we asked him if he had any books he would recommend on the Illuminati. It turned out that it's pretty tough to find either popular or scholarly tomes concerned with the actual, real-life history of the group. Spence sympathized. In fact, the only book he could think of that would be useful for our purposes was The Perfectibilists by Terry Melanson. So, of course, we bought it and read it, and it indeed provided us with a solid background on Adam Weishaupt and his group. But it was still surprising to us that this, a book written by an amateur scholar, not to take anything away from Mr. Melanson's diligent work on this book, was the only significant treatise published in the last several decades on this topic. How could that possibly be, given the ubiquity of the Illuminati in conspiracy theory circles? I mean, it's not just weirdos like me who get into these topics. Sociologists, psychologists, and simply students of political and pop culture historical phenomena pay attention to conspiracy theories. And there are plenty of materials about the specter of the imaginary Illuminati that the paranoid see behind every corner. So how is it possible that nobody's writing scholarly work on the original Illuminati themselves, except again for Mr. Melanson? Oh, Jesuit, du armer einsprachiger Kaud. Nur weil Bücher nicht auf Englisch veröffentlicht werden, bedeutet das nicht, dass die ganze Welt ein Thema ignoriert. Erforschung von Weishaupts Illuminaten wird im deutschsprachigen Raum seit mehr als einem Jahrhundert fortgesetzt, wobei wichtige Entdeckungen über die Mitgliedschaft, die Auswirkungen auf das europäische intellektuelle Leben, die Auflösung und den allhandenden Einfluss bis ins 19. Jahrhundert in der wissenschaftlichen und sogar populären Literatur erscheinen. Et pendant que je suis, des universitaires de langue française ont été tout aussi actifs retraçant la manière dont les idées illuministes ont réellement informé bon nombre de ceux qui ont aidé à diriger la Révolution française naissante, bien que d'une manière complètement différente et bien moindre que Parouel ou Robinson ne le laisse croire. Weirdly, in spite of the fact that I speak neither German nor French, I think I have some idea of what she was saying there. Wahrscheinlich, weil du es geschrieben hast, du na. Which is that while English language scholarship on the topic has in fact been sorely wanting, German and French scholars have uncovered plenty about the Illuminati and their intellectual impact on the Europe of their time. In fact, while clearly Abbe Baruel and John Robeson's narratives of the Illuminati's and Freemasons' secret manipulation of the French Revolution for their own nefarious ends are in many ways total fantasies, recent scholarship has clearly indicated that some of those who had been active in the Bavarian group did have influence, either directly or indirectly, on the political thought of some revolutionary leaders. Melanson's book attempts to recapitulate this scholarship for an English-speaking audience, and Mr. Melanson himself was equally eager to help us in the interview he so kindly granted us a while back, which we'll dip into periodically as we proceed. Naughty, you're so naughty. 
Our story starts, as so many conspiracies do, with an angry young man. In this case, that's the now legendary Adam Weishaupt. Born in 1748, his father would kick the bucket five years later. At the ripe old age of 36. And young Adam. And presumably Adam's mother. Yeah, probably, but she's hardly mentioned. Historians aren't super concerned with the ladies' unicorn. Naturally. Point being, young Weishaupt's tragic loss of his dad placed him in the hands of a super progressive, in mid-18th century terms, authority figure in the person of Johann Adam Baron von Ickstadt, who, as Melanson notes, was a rector of the local university. That local university, which Weishaupt would eventually attend, was, as was normal in Bavaria at the time, run by that shadowy and often conspiracy-friendly sect of the Catholic clergy, the Jesuits. His father died when he was five years old, and his mother wasn't around. His godfather took care of him afterwards. So from five years old until he went to university when he was in the early 20s, he had full reign of his godfather's gigantic library at the time. It was like 4,000 books of Enlightenment philosophy and criticism of the church. The Enlightenment books that were banned because his Jesuits didn't want to teach it to their students. He rebelled against the Jesuits' rigorous orthodoxy and relentless opposition to ideas that would contradict the authority of the church. Young Weishaupt, with what appears to have been a Holden Caulfield-esque nose for bullshit coming from the authority figures whose thumbs he found himself under, began bucking the rigorous and... what's the term? Uh, Jesuitical? Yeah, that's it. He rebelled against the Jesuits' rigorous orthodoxy and relentless opposition to ideas that would contradict the authority of the church, while at the same time embracing their intellectual defense of nefarious tactics in the name of establishing God's kingdom on earth. However, for the young Weishaupt, the aim was not a theocratic utopia, but rather a future society of tolerance and peace based on Enlightenment rationality. As Spence notes, Weishaupt's utopian vision of Illuminism, down to the need for secrecy and manipulation in pursuing it, is a clear reflection of later communist idealism and tactics. Don't jump ahead, Dana. There's plenty of 18th century before we get to the Marx connection. As Terry Mellinson explained to us, young Weishaupt, in his rebellion against the Jesuit order, took heart in 1773, when the then-pope officially dissolved said order, vacating the previously Jesuit-held chair of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt, where he had eventually graduated and was by now a lecturer. The chair had been held by a Jesuit for nine decades, but now was open to an iconoclastic smarty-pants son of the Enlightenment. But of course, as we'll see with Weishaupt's own group in the coming decades, official dissolution still leaves a bunch of sympathetic loyalists eager to keep conspiring. Though they were, as it turns out, temporarily dissolved, pro-Jesuit forces immediately began acting against Weishaupt's nomination, gathering prominent allies within the school's hierarchy. The war over the liberal Weishaupt's assumption of this position continued for years, and as Melanson notes, even led to the young professor's salary being withheld for a time. The Jesuits weren't the only enemy, though. The Rosicrucians, like Dracula in the Castlevania video game series, were still a threat. Wait, you spent a couple of hours assuring us that the Rosicrucians were more a pamphlet and a series of youthful aspirations than an actual secret society. Yeah, that was certainly true during their founding period in the early 1600s. But by the 1750s, Bavaria hosted one of a wide variety of Rosicrucian organizations that were loosely based on the legends attending the original group. Think of them as Christian Rosenkreutz cosplay, combined with the 1700s version of the Proud Boys, and you'd be most of the way there. 
The Bavarian Rosicrucians were an avowedly anti-Enlightenment, pro-Catholic, Jesuit-friendly secret society bent on opposing all of those who questioned the Mother Church. The Rosicrucians back in Weishaupt's day were a newly formed organization started in about 1750. They were aligned with the Jesuits. They were reactionaries. They wanted to keep the old regime and Catholic religion. They hated the Enlightenment. They hated the way that Enlightenment professors were teaching the students. The Rosicrucians were infiltrating into the universities, and they were trying to go after the same people that Weishaupt was. He said, I'm going to make my own secret society. He took four of his students and formed the secret society in May 1st. He called the Perfectibilis. And he wasn't sure really what that meant, but it's, you know, perfecting of humanity through reason and basically worship of reason. We want to fight fire with fire because secret societies were all the rage back then. His enemies firmly in his sights, by 1776, Weishaupt had decided on his course of action. He would form his own society based on Enlightenment principles and then use it to secretly infiltrate all levels of society, quietly influencing centers of power and decision-makers to bring about the rational, egalitarian utopia of his dreams. And so, on May 1st of that year, Weishaupt founded the Order with four other members, each of whom received a codename. There was Weishaupt himself, a.k.a. Spartacus, Franz Anton von Massenhausen, Ajax, Max Edler von Mertz, Tiberius, a law student known only as Bauhoff, Agathon, and Andreas Sutor, Erasmus Rotterdamus. On May 1st, 1776, five men gathered around a table in Ingolstadt, Bavaria. Leading them was a local professor of canon law, the 28-year-old Adam Weishaupt. They gathered to inaugurate a new secret society, the Order of Perfectibilists. Its name soon changed to the Order of the Illuminati, or in German, the Illuminaten Order. Its totem was the Owl of Minerva, or Athena, the ancient goddess of wisdom. Another symbol was a dot in a circle representing the all-seeing eye. Not the all-seeing eye of God, but of the mysterious, unknown superiors to whom the Order answered. Indeed, the original name for the group was the Perfectibilists. Thus, the title of Mr. Melanson's book. But Weishaupt soon changed it to the more familiar Illuminati, or Enlightened Ones. The reason for the new name was clear. As Dr. Spence notes, the group was only one of a number of organizations that had taken the name, or a local variation, over hundreds of years, in each case imagining themselves as a select cadre seeking to bring the light of reason to humankind. The term Illuminati has been used many times before. In the classical age, any initiate of a mystery cult was considered an Illuminatus. The same was true for a Christian who'd undergone baptism. In essence, what Weishaupt envisioned was the realization of heaven on earth. A 5th century Persian prophet named Mazdak imagined something much the same. Another version is the millennial paradise that many believe Christ will usher in on his return, or the perfect kingdom Jews anticipate with the Messiah. And additionally, secret societies were all the rage. The social media, or blockchain, or NFTs of their day. The liberalizing trends in government in the preceding decades had carved out a space where at least some citizens could express themselves without immediately feeling the wrath of the powers that be. But on the other hand, from its very inception, Weishaupt established that his group's secrecy, unlike that of the Masons and other contemporaries, would be real, because they really had something to hide. For example, the group had no room for religious beliefs or patriotism, which, even in liberalizing regions, was not an acceptable perspective in 18th century Europe, and they were big on the ends justifying the means. As Dr. Spence notes, assassination, treason, murder, 
All these things were okay as long as they were done in the pursuit of the bright future of human freedom that the Illuminati aimed for. Membership quickly expanded, and who were the enlightened ones attracted to Weishaupt's secret clandestine army of ruthless reason? Weishaupt focused on recruiting what today we'd call influencers or opinion shapers. Illuminati brethren also mostly represented the have-sums of Enlightenment society as opposed to the have-nots and have-everythings. They have some, and they wanted more. They embodied both ambition and resentment. The same sort can be found in the driver's seat of almost every revolution. Marx, Lenin, and Castro would have felt quite at home. The ultimate goal was to make men free and happy, but first they had to be made good, and that required manipulation, trickery, even coercion. While the Illuminati would be the enlightened aristocracy of the New World Order, even they weren't equal or free. A recruit or a novice was under the complete control of his recruiter or insinuator. Novices were told what to read, how to think, and they kept a daily account of their every thought and action. They had no secrets from their insinuator and obeyed every command without question. Noting that the games and abuses of secret societies were without end, he said, I wanted to make use of this human weakness for a real and worthy goal, the welfare of mankind. Simply put, Weishaupt saw that men desire status, and offering them access to secrets, real or imagined, was a way to manipulate them. As we noted before, the Illuminati was founded on secrecy, conspiracy, and manipulation, but the group was too small to be able to further Weishaupt's goals on its own. He needed to leverage an existing organization to bring his master plan to fruition. What better group of rubes to infiltrate than the already successful good old boys club of Freemasonry? After all, it was his disappointment at the fact that Freemasons were not serving as a revolutionary force and a real opposition to the reactionary Rosicrucians that inspired his creation of the Illuminati in the first place. John Dickey explains. One of the reasons Vsub founded the Illuminati is he thought Freemasonry was a bit rubbish. Wasn't really spreading Enlightenment ideas, was just a bit of a drinking club. He thought it hadn't done its job. And then he founded the Illuminati, but they weren't going anywhere at all. And he realized, you know what, we actually need those things that the Freemasons have got, all those intriguing rituals and the sense of a club and a belonging and the myths and so on and so forth. So what we're going to do is take over Masonic logics and build within them our structure of ever more secret compartments. And that's what allowed them to spread. Melanson concurs. One of his students had joined the Masons. He said, maybe I should join the Masons too. He joined the Masons in 1777. He was disillusioned with the Masons too, because they weren't trying to change society. It was just like a boys club sort of thing. So he decided to make his own rituals that harkened back to the old Greek mystery schools. And a lot of Gnostic influences were involved too. He was trying to do it in a manner that incorporated enlightenment values of expression. Because Weishaupt had modeled his society not after the showy, meaningless secrets and rituals of the Masons, but rather the genuine cunning, obfuscations, intrigues, and effectiveness of his original enemies, the Jesuits, it was easy for the growing ranks of the Illuminati, numbering perhaps between two and 3,000 by the group's heyday in 1784, to infiltrate not just the Masons of Bavaria, but virtually all of the Masonic lodges of Central Europe, as Melanson carefully traces for us in his book. With the exception of France, about which more later. All the while, the Illuminati and the Rosicrucians were obsessed with spying on and casting aspersions on each other. 
It was kind of like a spy operation, and the Rosicrucians, in turn, were spying on them. They were trying to get the goods on each other, plus they were trying to indoctrinate their members. They were trying to get them to spy on their own family, make reports of the higher superiors. But then fate seemed to turn against them. Weishaupt lost his position at the university, accused of securing ungodly books for the students. The local ruler started issuing edicts banning secret societies and their practices, specifically banning the Masons and Illuminati. Then a prominent Illuminist was literally struck dead by lightning, with sensitive documents and a goddamn membership list found sewn inside his clothes. Weishaupt had to go on the run, ending up in exile in the city of Gotha, which is pretty much the point where he passes out of the story of the Illuminati. In the hearts and minds of both detractors and admirers, Weishaupt of course remained, and remains to this day, pretty much the only person one thinks of when the real-life organization's name is mentioned. Naturally, this is where we get to the French Revolution and the Illuminati's supposed influence on it, as narrated by the work of Abbé Berruel, which we previously discussed when we tackled the supposed role of the Freemasons in that bloodbath. John Dickey here provides the mainstream view of why Berruel ended up aiming his poison pen even more at the Illuminati than he did the Masons, characterizing the latter as merely the dupes of the former. The Illuminati had a very short and, in a sense, slightly comical life in the late 18th century, in that most people who joined them saw them as a sort of glorified Enlightenment book club. And the people who regarded them as a sort of conspiracy to create a new utopian enlightened society really were making it up as they went along and had no actual plan for how this was going to happen. They had this model of sort of Russian dolls of secrecy. And at the outer layers, there were no secrets. You were just reading books and discussing stuff, you know. Whereas in the kind of innermost layer, you would find actually our job is to create a new world. And it was a very seductive model, a way to create an organization, keeping people on board with this eternal promise of more secrets and more revelations to follow. It collapsed because some of the people who were approached reported it to the authorities and the very conservative authorities in Catholic Bavaria, where the Illuminati grew up, abolished them. And they were a useful enemy for the Bavarian authorities who didn't like Enlightenment ideas and were suspicious of the Freemasons and thought, great, fantastic, we can sweep them away and they're a good excuse for a crackdown. But that apart, the Illuminati was a chapter that had kind of finished, if you like, when the French Revolution came around. And there were a few people who caught up on the idea later and thought, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll form a little Illuminati cell. Uh, It's quite a seductive idea, but it wasn't coordinated. Whereas Baruel really latched onto this idea and thought that the Illuminati were the sort of great, most refined version of the Masonic conspiracy. And of course, the beauty of the way that Illuminati Russian doll type structure The way it works from the point of a paranoid conspiracy theorist is that it makes your conspiracy theory completely impossible to disprove. If you say, well, you know, the Illuminati, they're just a glorified book club. You say, well, that's because you haven't dug deep enough. These people on the outside are just the dupes because behind them, 
there are more evil people, and behind them there are more evil people. We just haven't quite discovered them yet. It creates this perfect, unfalsifiable myth about the conspiracy that is so cunning that we haven't quite exposed it properly yet. But it exists, so there's no question about it. So that's, I think, where the Illuminati ideal became so seductive and so powerful and have such a lasting influence for conspiracy theorists. One of the reasons Vsab founded the Illuminati is he thought Freemasonry was a bit rubbish, wasn't really spreading enlightenment ideas, was just a bit of a drinking club. He thought it hadn't done its job. And then he founded the Illuminati, but they weren't going anywhere at all. And he realized, you know what, we actually need those things that the Freemasons have got, all those intriguing rituals and the sense of a club and a belonging and the myths and so on and so forth. So what we're going to do is take over Masonic logics and build within them our structure of ever more secret compartments, um, if you like. And that's what allowed them to spread. That synopsis is accurate, but as Melanson notes, there's a bit more to it. The real life of the Illuminati didn't have much impact because they were discovered before they had time to implement their actual plan. They had big aspirations to infiltrate the state, which they managed to do, right? But they didn't last long enough so that they could actually put their plans into operation. But they had big plans, and they did infiltrate the schools. They infiltrated the government. They stole official documents. They're passing them on. Spence reinforces that last point. As opposed to open proselytizing, mass movements, and direct confrontation, he advocated secrecy, or more to the point, conspiracy. The great strength of our order lies in its concealment, he decreed. Let it never appear in any place in its own name, but always covered by another name, and another occupation. Melanson leverages verified sources to trace the activities of the man who took up the mantle of secret leadership of the group after Weishaupt's exile, Johann Joachim Christoph Bode, whose own diary offers solid evidence of the significant impact his 1787 journey to France had on the influential Freemasons he met there. Weishaupt was ousted by the second-in-command, Bode. He decided to go to see if he could recruit any members. So he came along, he missed the conference, but he ended up staying with the conference organizer, which his name was Savalette de Lange. He was the master of the Ami Reuni Lodge, and was one of the most powerful lodges in Paris. And that lodge consisted of bankers, finance ministers, and you name it. If there was a revolution that was going to go on, it's got to be financed by somebody. He went there and he stayed for a couple months. And he talked to him day after day. And he finally got him to not dispense with his cult beliefs totally, but he finally got him to sign oaths to the Illuminati. We can't call him Illuminati because the Illuminati is the devil nowadays. Everybody hates him. They decided to call it a different name. They called it the Philadelphs. He managed to recruit the five top members of that lodge. A lot of them played a role in the French Revolution. By 1792, there was about 70 members, and we're not sure who these members were, and so we really know what impact they had, but he did make headway in France. So, to review, while the Illuminati had indeed been dissolved in Bavaria, and it's also true that Abbe Berouel's suggestions regarding the role of the Masons and the Illuminati in the French Revolution were, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, perfectly the ravings of a bedlamite. 
It's also true there is a documented trail, including Boda's own diary, detailing his successful meetings with important Freemasonic lodges in France and his indoctrination of many free-thinking and powerful French movers and shakers into the philosophy of the Illuminati, albeit under a different name, the Philadelphs. It's fair to say that many of these men, given their important roles in society and their political leanings, would have been influential among pro-revolutionary thinkers when the revolution broke out. So you're saying that while Baruel is clearly off his rocker with his operatic and wildly overblown tales of specific deliberate orchestration of the very chaotic French Revolution by the Illuminati, it's probably fair to say that Illuminati ideas, which were deliberately and specifically introduced into France by the then head of the order in exile, probably had some effect on the actions and ideology of some of those most prominent in these tumultuous events. Yeah, it appears that way. And if Melanson is right, the reason most English-speaking writers haven't addressed this evidence, which emerged way back in the 1990s, is mostly because English scholarship has fallen so far behind the European state of the art. Wow. Must be sad for anyone who only speaks one language. I can't imagine how limiting that would feel if, for example, I were trying to do a well-researched and intellectually rigorous podcast episode on this topic. Imagine! Yeah, yeah. Laugh it up, Miss Rosetta Stone. Unfortunately, she's right. I wish I could provide more context here, but I can't. Still, it sure seems like we in the English-speaking countries could use a modern, rigorous, formal academic study of this topic. If only someone who, I don't know, speaks, for example, English, French, and German... Nope. Hold it right there. I read the lines, but I am not going to write an Illuminati book for you. Well, shit. Moving on, another interesting thread Melanson pursues in The Perfectibilists is the intellectual influence that Weishaupt, Boda, and company have had on later revolutionaries, including the aforementioned third president of these United States. I refer to Thomas Jefferson as a luminous at heart. What I meant by that is he didn't put them down like Washington did. He knew about the same philosophy. He read the same books, Rousseau, Montesquieu, Hobbes, and he knew there was a change going on. But he started from scratch. They had to destroy the old order to try to make the new order. That's why he had so much sympathy for him. But he said they couldn't operate here in America because there was no need for it. In fact, the Illuminati even tried to come to America, and they sent a letter to John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. And John Adams said, come on over. You, you can be free here. You can do whatever you want. As long as you go by the rules, you don't break any laws. Come here. We got all kinds of land. And they had that idea back in 1780. It never came to fruition. They really didn't have that much money. A lot of people think they were financed by Rothschild, but they weren't. Moving beyond the era of the French Revolution and the early days of the American Republic, the philosophy behind Weishaupt's Illuminati continued to influence new generations of European revolutionaries throughout the subsequent century, including the legendary and prolific Italian Philippe Buonarroti, who planted secret societies across the continent like an anti-authoritarian Johnny Appleseed. Bonarotti, he was born into an aristocratic family, an Enlightenment adherent. He decided that at the time, there was revolutions going on everywhere, and he, he wanted to make his own secret society. He gathered influences from all kinds of places. And you can really tell by the actual historians who went through his documents and the documents they confiscated, his major influence, he really liked the way that the Illuminati operated. He decided to make a society in the same purpose, but with revolutionary intent. 
And so he taught most of the same things that the Illuminati did. The authorities were always on to him somehow. So he had to go from secret society to secret society. But whenever he made one, he knew that he had to infiltrate masonry because that's the way they did it before. And he knew it worked. Plus, he was a Jesuit hater, too. So that's why he sympathized with the old Illuminati. For years and years, he was in the shadows. He made secret societies by himself. Everybody looked up to him, especially Karl Marx. All the revolutionaries of the 19th century, they looked up to him as like the grandfather of all the secret societies. Plus, he started calling his secret societies the Philadelphs, which is kind of funny because the Illuminati were called the Philadelphs. And he actually was friends with one of the Illuminati recruits, Rotier de Montalo, one of the original ones that Boda had recruited back in the French Revolution. So, the Illuminati had a significant real-world impact on revolutionary thinking in France and beyond, all the way up to Marx and the 19th century anarchists. And of course, the specter of the Illuminati's influence ended up gradually morphing perception of the group itself, thanks to the spread of Barrowell's grand conspiracy view of the French Revolution, into the unkillable satanic conspiracy behind every major event in the history of the world, right up to the present. For conspiracists, yes indeedy. But whatever happened to Weishaupt? He kept a low profile in his exile city of Gotha and lived to the ripe old age of 82, dying in 1830. Perhaps the weirdest fact is that the old Illuminist and scourge of the Vatican and all organized religion was raising funds for the local church building when he died. What are you going to listen to now? You could browse endless podcast lists and take a shot. You could ask your mates and wait for no one to reply. Or you could listen to us, your friendly castologists, the professional pickers of all things podcast. Zane, Nick and Liz listen to all the things so you don't have to and find the best podcast that should be on your radar. Every Monday we're coming at you with three hand-picked podcast recommendations. Then we review each other's selections so you know what's really good. Will we always agree with each other's picks? Yeah, probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know how that's how reviews work. You got this. A That's Not Gunner Productions podcast. Welcome to Books Boys. 
Every month, the Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favourites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Books. <laughs>